I've seen it, I've experienced it, but me telling people is of no benefit to me whatsoever, because whether they believe us or not, it's not important. I know what I've seen, and that's just important to me. That's the first question. Did you take a photo? And so it immediately puts you on the defensive, because when you say no, people say, well, it didn't happen. You're on the back foot of what's your little story. Welcome to Big Cat Conversations. We speak directly to people who've encountered one of Britain's big cats. We also discuss the bigger picture. I'm Rick Minter, and thanks for joining me. Hello, and welcome to episode 73 of Big Cat Conversations. We're coming to you around mid-April in 2022. Our guest for this edition is Jonathan, and he is currently based in Staffordshire, and he's retired from work in the military and the police, and that is all very relevant to some of what we'll hear in a minute. He's going to tell us about his very full-on Big Cat encounter in South Derbyshire in 2013. That's coming up a bit later, because first of all, he will describe some of his experiences overseas when he's been up close to some large predators and big fierce animals, including some large cats. So, Jonathan, hello, and thanks for joining us. Hi, Rick. Really pleased to be here on the show, and uh, thank you for having me on. Pleasure, Jonathan. I know we've got a lot to cover, and I know also that you're in a very fatigued and slightly stressed state because of what's just happened at the weekend in a climbing mishap. We'd better set the scene and just hear about that. I know it's a bit grim, but something we should hear about, I think, anyway. Yeah, absolutely, Rick, and thank you, and I apologise if I am sounding a bit jaded, but yes, I haven't had any sleep. But yes, yesterday I was climbing up the Roaches in Staffordshire with a, a good friend who's an extremely competent climber. On our last climb of the day, we had some gear pull out on a route, and my good friend Cherry took a fall of about 10 to 12 metres. All of our protection, all of our gear pulled out, and she landed very heavily on on a boulder field below and she's had some extremely serious injuries she was taken off the mountain by uh, Buxton Mountain Rescue who did a fantastic job and the Staffordshire Air Ambulance yeah she's in Stoke Hospital awaiting surgery so yeah I'm a little bit weary a a little bit stressed with that situation but yeah I, I think it shows I spend Nine days out of ten these days is sort of outdoors, out in the countryside, climbing, walking, trekking about. But thank you for acknowledging that I might be sounding not quite my chipper self. So sorry to hear that news and just goes to show that the most um, well-prepared, competent and trained people can have those kinds of problems and it can affect their lives. And obviously we wish her and her family all the best. And I know you'll be supporting her in coming days. And uh, are you okay yourself physically? Yeah, I'm physically okay, just very tired. And it was just something, you know, I thought about just as we were talking earlier, Rick, that when the rescue team and people arrived, they said, oh, did you photograph the situation as it happened, etc." And And it was actually the last thing in my mind was to take any sort of evidential notes or recordings or photographs of the situation it happened so quickly it was so outside of my normal frame of reference that I was just engrossed in the situation and I related back to when other guests have been on and said they've had a sighting and 
and people have said behind say, oh well why didn't you get your camera out why didn't you make a sketch in a notebook or record something and and I think when something hits us completely out of the blue the last thing on our mind is that we're going to take an accurate description and a timeline and and maybe grab our phone and, and take a you know a video so I think it just sort of shows that understanding not just in you know a big cat encounter but in any situation which completely catches you out of the blue the last thing on your mind is to record it accurately the mind is in the moment and you're dealing with the practical necessity of processing and um, dealing with the situation and emotionally handling it it's just a sense of priorities at the time isn't it yeah and you're right there rick because it's not only the practicality of a situation our emotions are like flared up and going everywhere and sort of saying this isn't something i'm used to dealing with sure thank you for that all the best to her and her family in um, coming days and weeks thank you yeah okay now we have got a lot to cover and your email introducing yourself giving me background to your big cat sighting and encounter and experience is by far the longest and most detailed I have had as a curator of this podcast. And it was fascinating. And I thought, good grief, we're going to be absolutely spoiled for choice in in uh, speaking with this gentleman. So here we are, and we've got to pick our way through it. Maybe we hold the actual encounter with a big cat till later in the process and have you discuss your sure. experiences up to the point of seeing the big cat, because you've had other encounters with large, scary, fierce animals, but you found them actually not to be fierce and scary because they're obviously shy and wary normally. And so the behaviour of those animals when you've seen them close will be fascinating to hear about. But before we get to that even, let's hear about your childhood upbringing, because I gather your ex-military dad wanted you to grow up able to handle yourself in the outdoors and be self-reliant. So could we hear about how that all happened? Yeah, very much. My dad was born on the west coast of Ireland in 1933. He lived in what was called a roundhouse. He didn't have his first pair of shoes until he was six years old. And, and the family very much effectively lived off the land to fulfil their needs. And he came to the UK, I think, in 1939 as a young child. But, you know, he's quite a hardy man. And he served with Army Special Forces from the 1950s to the 1970s. That rubbed off on me and my brothers. We would know what plants you could eat, what plants you could use for medicinal help. Looking back now, we actually had a really fantastic childhood with some of the things we learned from Dad. It wasn't strange to have all kinds of game hanging in the garage or to be out hunting or fishing or living off the land so much of our life was spent outdoors in the countryside his holistic approach was you need to live in harmony with the land you need to live in harmony with the countryside you need to understand it you need to listen you need to look work with it you need to be part of it that foundation of not seeing the outside world and the natural world as a hostile place, but seeing us as a place that would provide and embrace and support you. It kind of gave me a mindset for being outdoors. Very interesting, because he was military, wasn't he? And Yes. 
I've met a fair few military people with a similar attitude and frame of mind. We're going to be talking about South Derbyshire, where your sighting was. Now, several years in a row, I used to run my Big Cat information stand at the National Bushcraft Show, and that was staged in South Derbyshire and many ex-military people would come in, all military people would come in and they would have very much that attitude of your dad's that you're just conveying. When I went into the army myself, that was very much an element of the mindset and particularly for working in the jungle of all places where I spent a lot of time. You went into the army cadets, didn't you? And then from there, it was almost seamless into the parachute regiment, into Aldershot. And in fact, I grew up on the edge of Aldershot, and I, I, so I knew that sort of heathy landscape around there. So my childhood yeah. was around there. But tell us about you know that, those stages of your life then, before we get into the jungle experience. I joined the army in 1984, the Royal Corps Transport. I just fancied driving a big truck. Um, but I ended up um, a, a year after training, being sent to the parachute brigade in Aldershot. I was seconded to the Pathfinders, who were the reconnaissance special forces unit with the brigade. And with the Pathfinders, that was where I first encountered real, what I'd say, bushcraft work in that we did a tour in Kenya with some ex-South African Defence Force reconnaissance trackers. And we did some tracking work. This was well before the formal British Army tracking training, which I think is now run out in Brunei or Malaya. We spent about three weeks learning basic tracking skills from the SADF. I just really got a flavour for it. Now, military tracking is about tracking personnel, tracking people. But when we did the training, they'd say, well, if you can track an animal, it's really then easy to track a man. I stayed with the regular army up until 1992. I finished in the regular army then, but I stayed with the reserves and the Special Air Service Reserve up until 2005. And during that time, I worked in a lot of environments in a military tracking capacity, pretty much worked all over the world in various environments. Well, we're going to hear about some of your encounters with large animals in different continents in a moment. Before that, can we just have how you would summarise the essence of tracking? You need to sort of say, who or what am I tracking? And get your head into the frame of mind of that animal, that creature that you're tracking. And this is where it becomes very important to understand the, the characteristics, the lifestyle, the breeding pattern, the eating pattern of that particular creature. If you're tracking a human, you, you sort of know we all live pretty much the same way. But if you're tracking a badger or a fox or a big cat, they all behave differently. So you need to sort of just sit and absolutely tune in and almost like in a spiritual sense, put yourself and say, right, I'm now this animal. What am I going to see? What am I going to smell? Where do I want to go? What do I need? And it's kind of like putting yourself into that place. I meet a lot of 
ecologists and trained sort of zoologists in my various activities doing sort of big cat follow-ups and big cat information stands. And many of them, not all of them, because some of them have had big cat encounters or have found what they feel is sort of tracks and signs of potential big cats. But most of them, I would say, claim that they are tracking and on the case of the animals that they study in the outdoors. And they are slightly sceptical, if not fully sceptical, because if our proposals about big cats here and naturalising are correct, that they're surprised they haven't encountered the signs of the cats, at least, in their activities. My response to them is, often that is just chance. You know, you weren't in the right place at the right time to encounter the signs. But also, sometimes, as I think you're implying, Jonathan, they're so focused on what their target creature is that they could possibly miss something else which isn't of uh, interest to them. Is that too easy a, a shrug off, do you think, or is there something in that? I think you're absolutely spot on, Rick. And if I can talk to you about a situation, it's about three weeks ago, I was climbing with my friend Cherry, who's now in hospital in North Wales, done a climb. We dropped the rucksacks at the bottom of the climb. We did a climb. We came down and my friend Cherry said, I'll oh, just take all the kit down to the camper van. And I said, oh, OK, I'll backtrack along the bottom of the cracks and pick up the other rucksack. And it was a valley full of sheep. But I had noticed the sheep weren't coming up onto the higher area. And it was a bit rocky, a bit craggy, but you'd normally get sheep there. The first thing I noticed was the smell. This is something which I think a lot of people don't tune into. A lot of us as humans, we've lost our tuning into our sense of smell. But I picked up first on the smell this really quite unpleasant, wretched, but very strong ammonia smell. And that like perked my interest because I thought, I'm not expecting that. I shouldn't be smelling that here. It doesn't fit with this environment. And I carried on along them and I noticed some trails, quite distinctive trails on really steep, rocky mountain ground but was a lot of mountain ash and rowan trees so some good cover but it was a 45 degree slope it was steep ground good trails but I looked at the trails and was no sheep clothed hoof tracks but it was a well-used trail but no obvious sheep or goat track which you'd expect to see so I thought well okay so there's something going up and down here but it's not leaving any trail which has got a hoofed cloven track. There's nothing that's putting paw prints out. So I thought, you know, it's not fox or badger. I went up and I came across a, like a, a small little cave or a laying up point and it stank of ammonia. I thought if it was somewhere sheep had been, you'd expect to see wool scraped off on the inside or sheep who or something because that's what they leave if they get a shelter from a storm but was none of that was no evidence of sheep within 150 meters of it three or four tracks leading away i found a couple of dried up scats which i've collected and picked up and then i found about 100 meters away the carcasses of five sheep you know one sheep dies Another one comes to the same area and dies, but to have five skeletal remains all in the same area. Yeah, I have bagged up the bones. I've got a lot of bones for two-pit analysis, etc. 
I think you're right. Five is more than you'd expect, isn't it? Five is a potential graveyard situation where a predator is stashing them. Yeah. I've photographed the whole area. I've bagged up the scat. I've bagged up the bones. I've took photographs of the trails, you know, bounced it around through a couple of friends. And everybody's saying, well, we need to keep an open mind. We need to put some stuff on the um, website for this edition. Maybe we could have a couple of the photos of, of that scene on this episode. I would definitely get them to you. I stumbled across this by complete accident. A completely inaccessible place for a normal human being. I was only there because I was looking for a rucksack, which we dropped at the bottom of a climb. No sensible person in the right mind would be in this area. What struck me as really, really strange, and I think this is what's really important, is looking at habitat and biodiversity, that the sheep were grazing everywhere else in the valley, but they were not coming within 500 metres of this area. My personal thoughts are, was it a cave or a, you know, a hide where perhaps some cubs have been raised? That's really stepping out on a limb because all I've got is some trails, some bones and some dried scat. Yeah, but grounds for suspicion. Yeah, and an area where there are no deer, of course, but there are wild uh, feral goats. Yeah, there are wild feral goats, but they're actually really quite robust. I don't know if you've met the goats from North Wales, the feral goats. No, every time I go there, I'm always looking out for them. just shows you how stealthy they can be. I've never seen them yet in Cheddar, where I go quite a bit in the Mendips. They sort of just stroll down into the town centre, so they can vary. But they melt into the landscape in North Wales very well. They're incredibly camouflaged and they are incredibly hardy. They come from an indigenous stock from 10,000 years ago. There's been DNA testing done and, and we know they come from that indigenous stock. There's about 1,200 of them left. I'll send you a couple of photographs. They are really hard to find, but you're going to laugh at this now. But my friend who's in hospital from a climbing injury, Cherry, if she comes out and she sings, they actually sort of rally round and, and we get some really good photographs with the goats. So You'll be yodelling next. You know, bearing in mind, they sort of go back 10,000 years. So they go back to the time where we actually had big cats living naturally in this country one of the reasons the goats have grown such huge big horns particularly the male goats is as defense we did have big cats as apex predators and you could see parallels in other ungulates across the world like the big horned sheep in america dealing with the pumas for example yes so we've probably gone off on a real tangent there very relevant, and I think feral goats are underrated critters. Okay, right. It's your your selection, really, of your overseas close-up encounters with big cats and whatever. I've worked in the Arctic. I've worked in desert, jungle, tundra, pretty much everywhere. The surprising thing is that you see very little wildlife. A lot of people come on social media and say why aren't we seeing these big cats and everything well i've spent weeks on end in the jungle on expeditions where you're leading a group of 14 year olds and of course you're not going to see very much with a group of 14 year olds because they are 
quite brightly dressed and they don't know how to be quiet. But the flip side of that, I've spent five, six weeks at a time as a special forces soldier in the jungle where, in effect, you are going out as the apex predator. On my jungle warfare course, we were told that when in country, operate as the apex predator. Let all other predators know you're about. Our instructor said to us, when you are operating in the jungle, so you're in full camouflage gear, you're moving, you're silently. In effect, you are the hunter. The wildlife know that you are top of the food chain. They will smell you. They will see you. They will sense you as long as you push that presence out. As long as you have that confidence which goes out of you saying, I'm here, I own this land, I'm out, I'm hunting, I'm coming through here. You will not see a leopard. The only difference is, is in Africa with hyenas and lions where they hunt in packs because they work on the dominance principle. So they're slightly different. But outside of that, and particularly big cats and bears and even wolves to some degree, when I've worked in Canada, the military working there said, you just present yourself as the apex predator. Wild animals are so tuned in. If you start showing yourself as terrified and scared, animals will pick up on that. If you behave like prey, have the attitude of prey, you could be selected as prey. So act like um, something yeah. that's going to present an injury risk and be a nuisance. All of our training was you are going out there, you are completely camouflaged up, you're moving stealthily, there's no lights, there's no sound, you are the hunter. I spent 18 years in Army Special Forces. Well, I know I've seen one leopard. And that was because this particular male leopard in Kenya it used to come up and deliberately wee on the security sanger at the entrance to the camp. <laughs> and you'd be three metres from it and it would just walk up and it'd look you straight in the face and just wee straight on the corner of the sanger. What's, what's a sanger? Oh, it's um, a sandbag sort of armoured sentry box. Oh, right. It probably didn't help that we'd throw sausages and bacon out and whatever else. So I think it had almost become a bit humanised and got us on its, you know, its circuit, its round. But it knew if it came there once a week and weed on the sanga, it would get a, a sausage. Yeah. And you'd coexist. It would coexist and you'd respect each other. Yeah. But there was no fear. It would literally loll up the track towards you, kind of like, in quite a nonchalant, relaxed way. You knew it was going to come and wee on the sangha and then you'd throw it a sausage sandwich and it'd eat it and go about its way. It was a bit bizarre, really. Brilliant, yes. Being close up to a grizzly is going some to keep your composure, I should think, though. You've, you've had that experience, haven't you? Well, it wasn't a grizzly. I was with my ex-wife and before we had children, we decided to go trekking in Canada. We based ourselves at Jasper. We headed out trekking in the 
Tonquin Valley area, the guidance was that you would just walk in the day, nobody moved at night, and you would get yourself into a camp. And the protocol in Canada is that you move into a camp, you do your cooking, and then you take off all your clothes and all your cooking gear and your food, and you wrap it in a bag, and you wind it up a, a cable and put it 50 metres up in a tree, and then you move 150 metres away in camp. So there's no scent of any food or anything on you or anything. We decided, uh, because I'd spent quite a bit of time in Canada, um, in the mountains with the military, you know, going around at night time and everything, and the Canadian military said, look, we've got bears, we've got wolves, we've got mountain lions. They aren't going to come anywhere near you. The Canadian army was saying, like, these creatures do not want to encounter humans. They want nothing to do with humans. You can be sneaking around or camouflaged up being as sneaky as you want. The bears and the cats and the wolves are just going to watch you and almost like snigger and laugh and go, you know, who's this joker? So we, we went trekking and we decided we were going to do a walk and we'd continue and we timed the walk and we knew we were going to be finishing and getting to the mountain hut late dusk, early evening. We were coming down the trail and it was dusk and I saw a tree and I saw two bumps on it and we're about 15 metres away at this point and then the bumps moved and they moved again and we're now about three to four metres away and then I realised it was two black bear cubs. Now that did alarm me because a big danger point is a mother with young. When I saw two cubs and they're climbing a tree which means they're feeling stressed, they're feeling under threat, they're going to place a safety. I just thought, you know, we were in a really, really dangerous situation. We just put a head torches on, we made quite a bit of noise, and we just got past them as quickly as we could. That was quite a nerve-wracking experience. Was Mother in the vicinity at all, or did you not, not find out? We didn't see Mother. We heard a bit of crashing through the undergrowth behind us, coming towards the tree where the cubs were but we just made great haste down the trail away. You know, that's a concern with any wild animal. If it's a mother with cubs, you're going to be potentially a threat. If the animal is ill or injured or elderly, you've got a problem. Outside of that, these wild animals want nothing to do with humans. On the same trip, we got to our mountain hut and we stayed and we had a great time. And the next day we were walking out and we were walking along a track roadway where I think where the lorries would go with the logging on, like a rough thing through the forest. And it was only about 50 metres in front of us. This mountain line just like lolloped down. It was like steep ground to the left of the track and then a steep down to the right in a river. And this mountain lion just lolloped out in front of us, about 50 metres in front. I don't know if you've ever seen like a teenager getting out of bed. <laughs> it was a bit like that. <laughs> it kind of looked at us, and this thing was huge. It kind of looked at us. It was just go, uh. <laughs> it wasn't alarmed. It wasn't aggressive. It really reminded me of my teenage son who had just woken up. Myself and Juliet, who I was with at the time, we just stopped still. 
you know, where we just thought it just didn't compute. Our natural reaction was we just froze. Both of us just stood still. We didn't utter a word. My mouth might have even dropped open. I couldn't even speak. And this, you know, big mad, uh, and I know it was a heat because as he swaggered up the road, you could see this huge set of testicles hanging under his tail. <laughs> and he sort of swaggered up the road a little bit, the trackway, sort of turned around, sniffed the air, sort of looked at us and then dropped down out of sight. And you didn't get a photo? No. Looking back, I think what makes it more surreal is that every film you watch, if anybody encounters a big cat, it's like ferocious and it wants to kill you and attack you and eat you. This cat looked at us with such disdain and disgust as if to say, well, yeah, what? (laughs) It was like it just had no interest in us whatsoever. Disdain is a word often used by witnesses here. Yeah. We're almost completely irrelevant to their lives, aren't we, in many ways? A friend who was based in Calgary, we went to Jasper and in in the area you're talking about. I remember we were doing one trek and we suddenly noticed the berries freshly stripped and eaten from the vegetation. And we suddenly thought, hang on, this is likely bare feeding so we carried on for the rest of that trek uh, for the next hour singing and making a noise and hyper alert hearts racing because you know we thought could be fresh bear activity bear in the neighborhood so we'll just make a noise and be unstealthy and bumbling and hopefully that will put it off was that the right thing to do do you think before we could go into the tonquin valley we had to go for a briefing with the rangers at the station in jasper and they said exactly that, you know, have bells on your rucksack, whistle or sing a song, basically let nature know you're coming. That was very much a briefing we had. But, you know, for me, it's conversely, when I've worked in Canada with a military and I, I did a sniper's course with the Canadian military. And, you know, so you're deliberately going out to be as stealthy as a big cat or whatever. And you still see nothing. And I think it's because although we think we've been really, really smart and sneaky and stealthy, they are still a hundred steps ahead of us. I think also people are spoilt by the vivid, colourful, close-up photography they see on Sunday evenings on their documentaries with David Attenborough and Netflix and whatever these days. And of course the investment and time and advanced preparation that's put into those documentaries of wild mammals and and nature in its full glory is beyond what we can imagine. The resources and the preparation is severe and intense and we get spoiled because we expect that and nature for a normal citizen is not like that. If you ever see anything like that it's by chance and, and you're very lucky and you have to suffer a lot of discomfort to get the rare moments of vivid views of nature. You do, Rick, yeah. I've spent a lot of years outdoors, you know, sleeping in ditches and under trees. And I just did a quick tot up in my years. In my lifetime, I've seen one polecat. I've seen one pine martin. I've seen one otter. I've seen one wallaby, which was in Derbyshire. 
Yeah, I think the Derbyshire ones are now lost, aren't they? That they did die out. They didn't survive several severe winters in a row. I think that was the case. But they were being monitored by uh, University of Manchester, weren't they? But Isle of Man's got some. Yeah, my sighting was back in the late 1980s when I saw one. So in terms of countryside rural foxes, I've only ever seen three. In terms of city foxes, you know, I've seen lots. But when I've been out and about in the countryside, I've never seen a badger and I've never seen a tawny owl. Yes, but you've heard tawny owls and you've seen the signs of badgers. Absolutely. But I just think this goes to show because people say, if we've got all of these cats, why don't we see them? I'm just like, well, have you seen a badger? Yeah, or an otter. Yeah, otters are good. A good yardstick, isn't it? If you're not seeing badgers and polecats and otters, well, you're certainly not going to be having that many sightings of big cats. Yeah, yeah. Can we just hear about the black jaguar that you've experienced? I'd taken some time off from my job in the police and I went out to Brazil to do some voluntary work with a sanctuary. It's a sanctuary for rescuing jaguars where cubs have been abandoned or habitat have been lost for whatever reason. And I went out and did three weeks voluntary work at the sanctuary. So I got to get a good perspective of the size of big cats, the behaviour, the smell, the characteristics. And it was a fantastic experience. I feel it certainly benefited me coming back to the UK with the interest in big cats. I mean, literally, I've had a jaguar. Um, he was hand-reared from a very young cub, and, and he's literally sat on my lap like a domestic foot-long cat would, but this thing weighed like nearly a quarter of a tonne. The main thing for me, which I think I noticed, was between jaguars and leopards, jaguars just seem much, they just look much heavier. Yeah, well, they can take down bigger prey, can't they? I don't know. I'm trying to think of an analogy. There's a saying, the jaguar is the wrestler, the leopard is the gymnast. I've mentioned that on the podcast before, but I think it's such a good one. Is that the analogy? Okay, well, yeah, that fits very well. Did you see a black one at this sanctuary? Yes. This was the one that tried to sit on my lap like it thought it was a domestic cat. <laughs> Linking back, that was what drew in my attraction in North Wales because these cats have a really strong smell. Yeah. I haven't been up close and personal with a leopard, so I don't know if leopards or mountain lions are the same, but certainly... The jaguars have this really strong ammonia smell. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think all of the cats do. Yeah, all of those large cats do. Well, that's certainly what attracted me to this site in North Wales. Before I saw anything, before any visual recognition, it was the smell. And I was just like, oh, that's not right. It was out of context because I spent so much time outdoors. I just thought, that doesn't fit the environment. That's big cats. Yeah, thank you. Shall we get on to South Derbyshire 2013 and the events leading up to it? Because it wasn't just an encounter. You were getting suspicious that um, something was happening. And so tell us about being a resident in that area and dog walking just at the end of the road. I'll mention the village. It was a village of Oversea. Fantastic little village, ex-smiling village. 
And was it part of the National Forest Project, free forest for multi-purpose forestry and recreational forest, that this was part of the sort of landscape regeneration projects? Yeah, that's exactly it. So they couldn't build on the land because they'd done this strip mining. So a lot of the land was then turned into nature reserves with lakes and really lovely area to live. And typical sort of second generation country village industry had stopped and people are now living there and moved there 2009. And we had chickens, we had dogs, etc., like everybody else did. Everything was fine until about 2012. And then a lot of people were putting on the community group social media that lots of cats were going missing, a couple of dogs had disappeared, and lots of people were suffering attacks on the chickens, but during the day from the foxes. This seemed to increase. And Going into 2013, I didn't notice it at the time, Rick, and this is the strange thing, I think, because when things happen slowly in nature, you don't really notice it, but it's when you look back. If I turn left out my front door, five doors up, there was the nature reserve, which had got uh, waterways, part of a disused canal, forests, bramble, thickets, and it was, you know, a real quite wild place. And we used to have deer up there because there was a lot of water. We'd have lots of wildfowl, um, all kinds of ducks and geese would, would nest. Spring of 2013, we had no wildfowl birds coming in and building nests and hatching young. We had a couple of pairs of swans um, and they disappeared pretty quickly. And I did find the remains of swans, but all I found was the breastbone and the wing, which had broken off. And But I, I wasn't putting two and two together at this point. I was just like, oh, you know. But the whole nature reserve changed. It almost became void of flight birds. It became void of waterfowl. It almost became sterile. and used to see a lot of deer across there they'd all gone i used to take my dog my dog was a staffordshire bull terrier stella i'd take her she used to love going walking up on the nature reserve but then with some days particularly dawn or dusk she wouldn't want to go she'd pull back if she wasn't on the lead sometimes she'd actually get to a certain point and she'd return and she'd literally tail between her legs and run home and sit by the back door which was just not her and was a friend of mine Fiona who lived opposite she got two retired police dogs German shepherds she got a Saluki and another German shepherd which was I don't know it, it was a nightmare dog it normally had to wear a muzzle and she broke a hand horse riding. So, well, I used to help her walk in the dogs each morning for about six months while the hand was recovering. And one morning we were out. It was dark. We were out with head torches. And once we got on the nature reserve, we let the dogs off. And we heard the dogs get into an almighty fight. We could hear the dogs going absolutely mental. 
but you could hear something else which clearly wasn't a dog you know fighting back we were making our way towards it as Chris we called and called the dogs in eventually we came back three of the dogs came back really really badly injured cuts and grazes and bite marks we assumed they'd just been after a deer because that's what they would normally do at that time in the morning this wasn't taking down a deer but i just wasn't connecting the dots at this point the behavior of the foxes changed you know normally what most people do with chickens you get up at dawn you go and open the chicken hutch you let the chickens out they come into a coop what a lot of us did you just let them out into your garden you go to work for the day you come back in in the evening you know the chickens would go back in and you'd shut the door and they'd roost the foxes went from nocturnal hunting to daytime hunting the foxes would actually come into the garden while you're in the garden having a barbecue or something like that and they would take a chicken we caught two of them and the foxes were suffering there was a vet lived in the village she looked at them she said these foxes are under extreme stress suffering from malnutrition they're not well they are really really stressed we relocated the two foxes that were caught in traps but the vet said there's something going on you know we got 37 cats missing from the village six dogs have disappeared without trace and we've now got foxes who switch from nighttime hunting to daytime hunting. Clearly, the whole environment had changed. What were the theories for these goings on, especially the missing cats? What were the range of thoughts about what it could be? We had a couple of community meetings. We got the RSPCA actually came and brought us some fox traps because they said, you know, foxes are coming into the garden when you're in the garden with young children, that's a problem. So they actually gave us two fox traps and said, if you catch your foxes, well, there's options. We relocate them or, or there's, you know, humane destruction. The natural environment had become sterilised. Some spell had been cast. Yeah. But yeah, so that brings me on to my sighting. It was August 2013. I heard the normal alarm call of my chickens going, what chickens do when they're under threat, they make a very vocal alarm call. So I assumed I've got a fox there, which would be the normal predator I'd expect to see. I stood up, got out of bed. It's about six o'clock in the morning. It's August. We'd had some really bright, sunny weather. The mornings were bright crystal clear so i got a long look uh, my distance up the garden was about 35 meters to a chicken coop and it was a rising garden going away from my vantage point of the first floor bedroom i looked up and i could see the chickens who are all still in the pen they're secure there's not a fox by the pen then i looked and i saw movement beyond my back fence where there's some waste ground. It used to be an old abattoir, and the waste ground runs between the road and the nature reserve. And this waste ground runs across the 10 gardens between the road and the nature reserve. And I saw movement, and I just thought, oh, there's a cat. And then 
my brain sort of went, uh, that's a big cat. <laughs> it was kind of like, oh, it's a black cat. I don't know. It's like my brain went into like treacle. You didn't clock it as a big panther size animal first. It was just a feline first. My initial reaction was, oh, there's a cat. And then it was kind of like my brain, I think it kind of like really slowed down in the processing. And it was kind of like, that's a big cat. (laughs) And as I'm speaking to you, that was kind of like how my brain was working. And then I started to sort of go, okay. And I actually really went through, am I awake? Is this real? And I'm quite used to dealing with situations which flare up right in front of your face. It's the unexpected. But my brain was still in that sluggish, is this real? Is this expected? If it is expected and it's real, what are you going to do about it? It's kind of like you sort of go into it, oh, like a slow motion. You want to think faster, but you can't. And again, you're not reaching for your phone, for the camera. No. Well, at this point, I was standing absolutely naked, (laughs) Um, you know, looking out the window. And the end result of my processing was, I think it wants to eat my chickens. So at that point, then, I, I threw on a pair of running shorts and trainers. And I ran up the garden. And I think what kicked in was when I did my jungle warfare training out in Malaya. The local guy said to us, if you do encounter a big cat, it doesn't want you. You know, it'll be scared of you. Chase it away. He said, you know, like your domestic cat that like jumps up on the kitchen table when you took the chicken out, the Sunday roast out the oven, you put it on the side to just cool for 10 minutes before you carve it and the cat jumps up and you shoo it off. That was how our guys said to treat, you know, big cats. And they come from an area where there are melanistic leopards naturally. Yeah, and, you know, so my instinct kicked in. There's a big cat. It's got an interest in my chickens. I don't want it to eat my chickens. So I ran up the garden shouting a hullabaloo in a pair of running shorts and trainers, and that was it, shouting and screaming like like an idiot, you know, get away from my chickens sort of thing. I think my language might have been a bit more blue. And I ran up to the end sort of wall and fence and looked over and this big cat moved along about three or four metres. And it just sort of stood there, looked at me as if to say, yeah, whatever. (laughs) And it really just carried on on its way. So I ran down the garden again, at my gate, I turned right. There's only five houses to the end of the road. So I ran down to the end of the road to try and get cooperation on my own mind. And on the road where this cat would have come out, there's a car stopped and there's a guy stood, driver's door open, and he stood with his hands on his head. And his mouth sort of open, but he can't speak. And I said, where is it? And he pointed and opposite was a little car park where you can park about 15, 20 cars for a primary school. And beyond that was another nature reserve. And he was just pointing into the car park. So I ran into the car park and 
this cat is just sitting there in the car park about three or four feet from a five bar gate which then goes into the nature reserve and it, it's just kind of like licking its lips and sniffing the air and i'm about i don't know 12 15 meters from it and at this point i thought jonathan you're in a pair of running shorts and trainers and um, there's a really, really big cat there. What are you doing? <laughs> um, I just sort of gently backed away and and it jumped up and went over the gate and disappeared. Do you think it was after your chickens or do you think that was just the route it was taking coincidentally? Absolutely. It was just the route it was taking. If I can describe to you, and I've put some words down here, how it was moving. It was strong. It was powerful. It was confident. It had an air of arrogance and nonchalance about it. It was unimpressed by humans. It had a graceful swagger. It had a purposeful movement. It clearly had its own agenda. It was on a mission. It was going somewhere. And I've sort of looked at its line of travel. Although I'd only got a short little bit of its line of travel, two, three hundred metres, it was heading towards Tricos Zoo. <laughs> I don't know, I understand there's a lot of sightings around zoos, but I also understand that big cats don't have a tremendously great sense of smell, certainly not like canines. Certainly Tricos Zoo, straight line distance, I think was 3.1 miles away. But it was on an absolute direct line. If you wanted to go from where I sighted it in a direct line to Tricos Zoo, it was on that direct line. And you said it was male. I remember you saying in your um, email that you saw it was a male. It was definitely male. It got a huge set of testicles swaggering under its tail. (laughs) I vividly remember that. Its coat was glossy it got a sheen to it i mean it was bright sunshine although it was six o'clock in the morning it was a really bright sunny day it just looked the picture of good health it just looked fit and well i would say the height at the shoulder the front shoulder was 60 to 70 centimeters its length i'd say from the tip of its nose to the start of its tail so like by its anus it got to be a good meter, a meter and ten, and then its tail had got to be another good one meter long. You know, its tail was thick; it was heavy. I think what got me was its muscular strength. It just looked a strong, strong, fit, very strong animal, capable of injuring German Shepherd dogs. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thinking back, when I, I, I look at it, I think, how stupid was I to run after it in, you know, a pair of shorts and trainers? This thing looked like it was on top form, top of its game. And put your deer in that area. It's interesting you never found a deer carcass, although you did find swan carcasses. Yeah. I mean, the deer, we used to have a lot of deer and they just disappeared, but never found a carcass. But yeah, with the swan carcasses, they will pretty much eat everything of a swan apart from they chew off the wing, sort of, if you like, from 
couple of inches down from where our shoulder would be, and they'll leave that. And the feet from, like, if you imagine, like, just above where our knee would be, and those were the remains that I used to find. And dragged, of course, because they're dragged from the waterside, which a fox couldn't really manage. A fox could take an, an injured old one opportunistically, yeah. but not proactively just drag one out and then eat it out from the on the breastbone. And to just leave that, you know, that was all that was left, the two feet and the two wings. And, and I actually brought a couple of the wings home, and you might not want to broadcast this, but my boys pluck the feathers out and then make writing quills from them. At least you harnessed, you know, you harnessed, you know, what you could from nature's um, nature's events. Yeah. Could, could we just quickly go back yeah. to the, the form and the size and everything of the cat? Was it completely black? It was the blackest cat I think I've ever seen. And bearing in mind, I've had a black jaguar sit on my lap, you know, so I've been very up close. It was much blacker than that. The jaguar but I had experienced in Brazil, you know, you could see the markings on this cat. I couldn't, I mean, I was 35, 40 metres away. I couldn't distinguish any markings on it. There was clearly some markings because it wasn't, it wasn't a pure black, but I couldn't see, you know, rosettes or, or, or anything like that. What did make me wonder about this cat is that just didn't seem to react to humans at all it was kind of like oh yeah you were human so what um so i don't know if it was an escapee or one that had been you know in human contact for some time i don't know why it wouldn't be a naturalized one because that's how they behave do big cats that have never had contact with humans can they be quite nonchalant and just sort of dismiss humans yeah 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 a lot depends on actual circumstances at that moment but but yeah obviously a lot of times they just sort of want to melt away but they often do it in their own time so many witnesses say you know it did melt away but it it did it arrogantly on its own agenda sometimes they do just absolutely bolt away very quickly so it does vary but they they don't hang about and it's this disdain you know it's this so what attitude to humans it just looked directly at me and then was kind of like, yeah, I'm just going to ignore you as if you don't exist. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I felt a bit offended, really. A very quick assessment of, are you a threat? No, you're not a threat, so I'm just going to ignore you. <laughs> yeah, and get, and get on with my business. Yeah. Now, obviously it was hanging around sometimes in this nature reserve at the end of residential area. Did anybody ever hear any vocalisations that could have been suspicious? Not that I know. I mean, we were quite a close-knit village community and we used to have regular meetings, even the community centre or the pub. And nobody really said they'd heard anything. And But what I've wondered about, because it seems like we had the ecosystem, the biodiversity was upset for quite a long time. So would a cat come to a place and be resident for a time? That is surprising. And I would suspect it probably wasn't resident, but, you know, maybe coming back there frequently. Because obviously if it's resident, it's sort of everything gets alert to it. You know, there's several reasons why they've got to have a home range. 
hardwired to check out females in estrus but also if they hang around too much in one place the deer and their other prey get used to them too much so they want to keep the prey naive and so they do have to shift around there's various reasons why so that is surprising though that it did seem like it was really intensively working that area that was why and again this is with hindsight since i've done a bit more reading up and research i thought you know, is this a cat which has been domesticated for a time and then released and it doesn't really know what to do or where to go, so it stayed? And interestingly, there was less than a mile from my sighting location, and I, I've given you the exact location, less than a mile, there used to be a private zoo and they had leopards as well as other animals. And they were shut down, I think, in around 2010 um, and told, you know, all of their animals had to be rehomed. So I did wonder if this was one of their animals, which they decided rather than, you know, to rehome properly, had just been released. Yes, I mean, certainly releases uh, don't all date back to the 70s or wartime. You know, there have been other episodes. Well, I still think there's more of a chance that it was just a naturalised one that had been, you know, grown up there, yeah. uh, born and grown up in the wild in Britain, uh, because perhaps if it was a release one, people would have seen it more. You know, I, I know they're still stealthy; it's still difficult to see, and they still sort of keep under cover. But the, the ones that are more recently out still get seen a bit more, especially in their early days, before they've learned how to absolutely sort of hide away and keep uh, yeah. keep out of sight. Yeah, my, my biggest indicator and, you know, for the benefit of hindsight, looking back now, which I'd advocate to anybody now who thinks they've got a big cat of their environment, is look at what's going on with the rest of nature. Yeah. Look at what's going on with the birds, with the foxes, of the foxes changing when they're hunting, of the rabbits changing what they're doing. It, it's about looking about everything else. Because looking back to the nature reserve, there was a significant change in the biodiversity and the whole ecosystem. And it was because we had an apex predator. That is going to tell you more than any finding any scat, finding any footprints. It's looking at what everything else is doing, how it's behaving. Back then, 2013, none of us really picked up on it. But I did a bit of a newspaper trawl after my sighting. And 18 months before and certainly 18 months, two years afterwards, across that area of South Derbyshire, Leicestershire, that little area where I was, I think it was about 16 or 17 sightings of this big black cat. But for me, the most significant thing looking back, Rick, was that whole change in, in nature all around the area. In the community, what happened in your conversations with local people and what did you hear back? What kind of reactions did you get? The main thing was upset and anger, but it was mostly aimed at the foxes because we assumed that our apex predator in this country is the fox. And particularly cat lovers, when 37 cats have gone, just disappeared without trace. Was no roadkill. Normally, you'd expect, you know, when a cat goes, somebody's going to, oh, yeah, we found Smithy or whatever. 
on the main road and we've got his tag. But no, these cats just disappeared. 37 cats and six dogs. Two people supported me on the sighting, but the rest of the community were like, no, it's a fox problem. We need to get rid of the foxes. To convince somebody of something that in their head doesn't exist unless they're in Africa or India, you know, it's, it'd be like to say, you know, you know, your fence has been trampled down by an elephant. And they say, well, we don't have elephants here. And you're like, well, yeah, but there's elephant footprints and elephant dung. An elephant has trampled your fence down. They're just going to say, well, I don't believe it. And so there were no other sightings from people that were declared anyway? Within the local community, no. Nobody else had a direct sighting. Both the guys that said... They didn't think it was foxes and they thought it was a big cat. We're both ex-army. And they'd lost, one had lost a dog, one had lost a cat and a load of chickens. Both of those guys at the community meeting said they didn't believe it was foxes. They thought it was a big cat. Did you get a view from the RSPCA? Did you discuss it with the RSPCA? They were very guarded. Because one of the foxes actually came into a person's conservatory where a child was sitting on like uh, one of those little child seats where you put the food on front of them and it grabbed the meal off the tray. I just think 90% of the village was... Hooked on that. Yeah, hooked on that. But looking back, to get foxes to go from being nighttime predators, which is what they do, to be running into a conservatory and nicking food off a child's table... They're under a lot of pressure. There's something out at night which is causing them a lot of stress, but they're having to hunt at day and not come out at night. What have we got in our countryside which takes down a fox? Were you a bit frustrated that people weren't seeing it as you did and believing you? Okay, so in the community, people were kind of like dismissive and it's foxes. You know, let's just eradicate the foxes. I knew what I'd seen. I didn't connect all the dots at that time, but I knew what I'd seen. In terms of work, I went into work. By this time, you were with the police, Jonathan. Yes, yeah, I was a police officer. I joined the police in 1992, and I finished in 2018. So my colleagues reminded me, said, yeah, but remember, you know, as a firearms officer... You used to train to shoot all kinds of wild animals, which is one of the jobs that you do as a police officer, because if animals unfortunately do escape from whatever facility, decision is made that they can't be captured humanely. As a police marksman, you do have to train to shoot them and different animals have to be shot in different places on their body. So you would train quite regularly with life-size targets of lions, leopards, bears, wolves. We had all of these plywood cutouts, which would take down to the range. And so you were used to seeing these animals at 50, 100, 150, 200 metres. So I got some concept of scaling and size. So when I went into work and said, yeah, you know, last week uh, I saw a black leopard or jaguar, whatever it was, being in my garden. And we're like, yeah, of course you did. You get a lot of weird reports in the police, so you come a little bit desensitised. But I spoke to a friend who was working on the helicopter unit 
And he said, yeah, we get loads of reports of people saying they've seen big cats and we get sent out and we get them on with thermal imager. And he said, you learn the scaling and stuff. He said, people are called in, say they've seen a lion or a tiger or whatever, and we go up and we get it on the thermal imager. But it's definitely not a domestic cat or a dog. It's definitely like a leopard or something. And yeah, we get it on camera, but it's not doing anything. It's not going anywhere. It's not harming anyone. So we just film it for a bit and then we get called to another job. I was just a bit like, oh, right, okay. <laughs> yeah. And in terms of emotionally, at the human level and your soul, you know, how did it feel to be that close to uh, that cat in, in the wild in Britain, around the corner from your backyard? I was definitely an emotional mind, so I've got three options, fight, flight, freeze. My initial one was fight, which was probably stupid. So I ran up the garden shouting all kinds of abuse, you know, to leave my chickens alone because um, I was fed up of the foxes, you know, coming in. On reflection, that was probably a really stupid thing to do. But looking back, it was also what they told us to do when I've worked in country. They said, if you, you know, you get a big cat coming prowling into camp. What they used to say to us was get your two mess tins and bang them together. They said they really hate that sharp noise of metal on metal. Vibration. Yeah. Interesting. So you saw it as a pest that needed ushering away and shooing off. That was my initial thought. And then I ran down the road and I saw it sitting there and I'd sort of calmed down. And I think because I'd done a bit of running, so my adrenaline had, you know, been spent. And I was kind of then like, wow, you're fantastic. I kind of like wanted to be in the moment. And it jumped over the gate. And, and then I felt a little bit annoyed because it had gone. And I wanted the moment to last. And then I sort of went back to the house and, yeah, I had to sort of pinch myself a bit to sort of say, you are awake. That has just happened. <laughs> um, this thing comes back to the, you know, people go, oh, well, why didn't you get your phone camera out? This was 2013. So, yeah, my phone would have had a basic camera on it. But that thought, you know, of, oh, let's get an evidential video documentary just didn't enter my head again back to our early discussion there were other priorities emotionally and physically practically for you at that time it radiated a presence of calm and contentment it posed no threat to me yes it was unfazed yeah there was no threat at all it radiated the fact that i see you you're not a threat I'm just doing my thing. But I was a little bit spellbound. I think spellbound is the word. I think even if I had had a phone tucked in my shorts pocket or something, I don't even think I'd have probably got it out. I was just in the moment. Too absorbed in that trance. Yeah, yeah. So I can fully understand where people say, you know, they just sort of stood there gawping and sort of stuck in the moment. I just think it was a probably a once in a lifetime experience. I would love to repeat that experience. I don't think I ever will. And as you mentioned earlier, there's people going out tracking and things. And, and that's what I'm sort of proactively doing now. 
people have had sightings and with my tracking skills, I'm trying to follow them up as quickly as possible. But of course, if you're on a track or a trail, you're behind whoever's left that trail. And you could be not just hours, but days or weeks behind it. It is a tactical judgment, isn't it, actually? I mean, it's called ambulance chasing, isn't it, partly? Do you follow up each one or do you sit in position with trail cameras or whatever for the next visit of the same one? I think you have to do a bit of both, particularly because some of the ambulance chasing, the following up of events, you're meeting landowners and local people and gaining trust and informants for any future activities. So there's a, a range of tactics that you could deploy. We were going to look at a particular word. Yeah, your word of the week. Sock it to us. Advocate. And I'll spell that for you. A-D-V-O-K-A-T. Advocate. And this is something we used to use in the police and the military. When you're talking to a witness, somebody who's observed a situation or something. And so we say, you know, A is for amount of time under observation. Then we say D, distance from the witness or person observing to the subject. V, visibility, time of day, lighting, any additional lighting or anything like that. O is obstructions. K is known subject from before. So that's have you had experience of seeing a leopard before? Have you had experience of seeing a lynx? Do you know what a big cat looks like? A is any reason to remember or be familiar. So again, that sort of links in with have you had experience with this creature before? Time lapse. So that's like when did you have your observation until when you've made a record of it and how accurate is your record? Because between observation and when you make your record, that time lapse memory does erode. Then we say errors and discrepancies. So my word is advocate which is an acronym reference guide to to go through that process yeah very interesting an acronym and i've always found it useful and when you know some folk post like a footprint or a photograph on one of the facebook pages i sort of go through advocate and sort of say how long did you see it for where were you thank you for advocate We'll put a, a little um, note on um, the website about that so people can see it spelt out in full. It's thought-provoking and it's a useful little guidance uh, discipline point, yeah. When I try and engage with anybody on Facebook, which at times can be quite frustrating because, you know, when somebody just puts a footprint up and you have 50 people go, badger, dog, cat, domestic, and I do try and sort of say, look, you know, guys, girls, why are you saying it's this? If you're going to say it's not something, then say why it isn't. Or if you're going to say it is, say why it is. Yes. Otherwise, you're just swapping opinion ad infinitum and it doesn't get you far. Yeah. Thank you so much for everything. I know that you've been in a very sort of jaded state and you've done heroically to take us this far. Finally, I wanted to say to you, in terms of what you do now to be sort of primed and ready to follow up things, knowing there are big cats around and you want to try and get more evidence, how are you set up to try and get more more and better evidence? You can only go as fast as the information comes in. And it's the routine. It's how you get people to feed that into you. 
when I go out on the ground, you know, I meet the informant, I make that personal contact, I spend time with them, I chat with them, and and that can give you so much more. One of the questions, um, a friend of mine said to me, he said, you know, you retired. Why do you know? Because some days I've driven 180 miles to follow up a report. And he said, Why are you doing this? I actually sat down the other day and I thought to myself, Why am I driving 200 miles across the country to follow a set of footprints and pick up some poo which has been left by an animal of a unknown type? Yeah, all because of one morning when you woke up and saw something out of your bedroom window a few years ago and unfinished business as a result of that. Maybe that's an interesting question, but you need to pose to people and say, well, why? I once said this to a long-term investigator uh, several years ago. I said to him, what do you want to have achieved by the end of your life on big cats and and he said i would like to see them in the guide to britain's mammals you mentioned the wallaby earlier on now that the wallaby is in the guide to british mammals that's what he wanted then you've got to say well what do you want are we assuming it's um, a straightforward puma, straightforward Eurasian lynx, and straightforward melanistic leopard, and and what else? But so it's a question of what would get in that guide. But you know that's step one. You know, yeah, I think that is a good, half decent, you know, answer. Yeah, I think that's really good. I think that comes a long way towards my why. One thing we d- we didn't touch on is how you follow up. Do you have anything? distinct in your follow-up work when you're on the case or would you just do have a sort of tracking kit and do you use trail cameras and thermal cameras and you know what kind of technology just quickly are you using i tend not to use trail cameras because of the territory that cats use um, with a battery life of cameras so i look at the territory use I tend to go more on physical tracking. What I'm looking for is particularly for females where they're looking to try and lay up and have cubs. So den sites. Yeah. What I'm trying to do, because with trail cameras, you could be looking at a 12, 18 month, two year process of a cat coming around a territory. So what I'm trying to do with my tracking is identify laying up points, uh, where a female will want to lay up and have cubs and then put trial cameras in, in and around that site. Yeah, okay. So more intense work on investigating and tracking for sign and yes. uh, and then yeah. home in on a place that is going to be more regularly used as a layup site. That is such a goal, isn't it, to find good layup sites because that's where the activity is going to be so often. Ultimately, what we... I think what we all want to prove is that we've got a a population which is ongoing. Yeah, viable. Yeah, a viable population. So my focus is on not looking at individuals. I, I want to try and track females with cubs and prove we've got viable breeding population. Great. Okay, we are going to have to leave it there. Thank you again so much for all your input. It's been stimulating stuff. You put a lot of effort into it, and um, I see you're going to continue to do that. 
we'll no doubt keep in touch. But meanwhile, thanks ever so much for these stories and information and uh, good luck with everything. So thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Rick, and I will keep sending you updates of what I'm up to. Lovely. Thank you very much. All the best. Okay, as we close the episode, just to say well done again to Jonathan, because he did that long and detailed call for us in a very tired state, having had no sleep the night before due to Cherry's accident and all its follow-up. That rescue on the Staffordshire Roaches area was reported in the press, so we've put a link to that story on the Big Cat Conversation website under episode 73, and you can see photos of the Buxton Mountain Rescue team in action, so well done again to them. Also, along with a link on the website for episode 73, we have got a couple of Jonathan's photos of the Snowdonia goats close up. And there's also a link to information on Britain's primitive goat herds in different remote places, and that's a fascinating topic, I think. And, as promised, there are a couple of photos of the place in Snowdonia where Jonathan saw the sheep carcasses, the cave, and caught the ammonia smell of what might have been from a large cat. Now, this episode is coming out around Easter time, 2022, and coincidentally, on Easter Day, 17th of April, at 1.30pm on BBC Radio 4, there's a latest edition of The Listening Project. This podcast was asked to advise on a Big Cat snippet for that edition of The Listening Project, so halfway through that edition, you will hear Corin from Episode 2 of Big Cat Conversations in conversation with Paul, who was on Episode 8 and 28 of our podcast. So Big Cat's on BBC's Listening Project on 17th April, and we'll put a link to that episode on our website because it will be available to hear again after the live broadcast. OK, next time we're hearing from Charlie, a long-term investigator in West and East Sussex, He'll explain his own big cat encounter and give us highlights of other reports he's heard so we'll get a flavour of big cats in the Weald and the Sussex area next time. Righto, time to sign off now, so thanks again to our guest Jonathan and as ever, thanks to everyone for listening and supporting the show. Take care and bye for now.